God, we thank you for the privilege to, to gather as your people, to sing the praises of Christ. God, I'm thankful as we talk about sin and sanctification this morning, um, that all the things we sing are true, that Jesus has set us free, that Jesus has broken the chains of sin, that Jesus rose from the grave and he is our help today. And not only that, but Jesus has sent his spirit to help us change, to help us put to death the flesh. So God, we need your conviction. We need your encouragement. We pray that your spirit would move and speak today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few years ago, I was helping my brother mow his yard. This was before I had kids. Now I struggle to mow my own yard. But at the time, I was helping him. Now, as I pushed the mower and was mowing the yard, I couldn't help notice but how it felt like dead weight and how quickly I was getting worn out. What I didn't realize was this was a self-propelled mower. Now, self-propelled mowers can be great if you have it turned on. I didn't realize that. I wasn't actually holding down the lever. And so it felt like so much work just to mow this grass. Now, these kinds of mowers, they can help you again if you use them. But if you don't, it's actually harder work. Now, in what we read today from Romans 8, we actually see the same idea. It tells us that when we try to grow in Christ's likeness in our own power and strength, rather than in the Spirit, that's what it's like. It's like dead, lifeless weight. But the powerful, life-giving Spirit, He can propel us. He can help us experience life change when we walk in the Spirit. When we try to do things on our own, we quickly wear out. Our resolve and our strength is weak. Trying to change apart from the Spirit is like me trying to survive a day with a newborn without coffee. It's just not going to happen. Well, Romans 8 teaches us today that if we want to change, and I hope if you're here, you want to change. If you want God to mature you, to transform you, then we desperately need the Holy Spirit to help. We can't do it on our own. And in fact, the more we turn inward, the more we just try to grit our teeth and change, the more resistance and disappointment we'll experience. This morning, we'll finish out our four-week topical series on the Holy Spirit by considering that the Holy Spirit is the sanctifying or transforming spirit. God's design in our salvation, it's not only to forgive us, but it's to change us, to transform us. Well, as we start, are you the kind of person who likes to hear the bad news or the good news first? I'm kind of a pessimist, so I like to hear the bad news first, so that's where we're going to start today. So we look at Romans 8. The bad news is that the battle for spiritual maturity, it is a lifelong fight. A key part of Romans 8 is this contrast between the war going on, between the flesh and the spirit. And it raises the question, if Christians have been given the spirit why do we keep on sinning? Why don't we enjoy more of that freedom that we were singing about? Why, is our, why isn't our transformation easier or quicker or more comprehensive? What's the thing that's holding us back from being more like Jesus? Well, Romans 8 points out that the answer is our fallen sinful flesh. The biggest barrier to our growth, it's nothing outside of us. It's the fallen flesh inside of us. Follow along in Romans 8, verses 7 and 8. It says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
When Paul uses this term flesh, he refers usually to our corrupted nature in all its limits, its weaknesses, and our sin. Our flesh is opposed to God, it says. The flesh wants what the flesh wants, not what God's spirit wants. Now, flesh can also simply refer to our powerlessness to change, our weakness apart from God. Rio Orland, he defines the flesh as this way. He says, when Paul uses flesh, he means our natural moral potential. Now, we might equate the flesh with our nastiness, our willfulness, our lusts, and so forth. And that is a valid connection to make since the works of the flesh are fornication, impurity, and so forth, Galatians 5. But there is a subtlety here in Romans 8 we should not miss. By the flesh, Paul simply means what you and I naturally are, including even our religious and moral capacities. And so the flesh is actually just me, apart from the Spirit's presence and intervention. And what Romans 8 tells you is that there is this lifelong, ongoing battle between your flesh and the Spirit of God in you. These two are opposed to one another. And again, the bad news is that this is a real battle. And it's difficult, and also that it's lifelong. And I hope this reminder is actually a reminder that we are desperate and dependent for the Holy Spirit. Getting that good news should prompt our hearts to say we need help from outside ourselves. Okay, so if that is the bad news, what's the good news? If you're already feeling a little discouraged by the fact that sin is going to nag at you the rest of your life, what hope do we have this morning? Well, the hope, what we see, is that the almighty, life-giving Spirit of God indwells and empowers you. And the good news is that the spirit inside of us is even more powerful than the flesh inside of us. When you get Christ as Savior, you also get the spirit as sanctifier. When Jesus frees us from the penalty of sin, we're told that he also frees us from the power of sin. So even though sin is still present in our life, it has no authority over us. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, we don't owe it anything. We have no debts to pay to the flesh. Therefore, now in Christ, we can walk in the Spirit. The Spirit can lead us to enjoy this victory that Christ has won for us. Notice in verses 10 to 11 how Paul describes this. He says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now, part of knowing the power at work on our behalf is understanding who this Spirit is and what he does. And let me point us to a couple reasons why this life-giving Spirit in us actually should give us hope, why it's good news. First, consider that sanctification is an essential part of what the Spirit does because it's who he is. He is called the Holy Spirit, not only because he is holy, but because he aims to make us holy. Now, because the Spirit inside of you is the Holy Spirit, he will never stop helping you fight your sin and make you more and more like Jesus. Second, we see that the Spirit is associated with these ideas of power and giving life. The sermon series title has been Numa, and Numa can be translated as either wind or breath. And both have the idea of something invisible that is still powerful and life-giving. 
And before I show you a few examples of this in the Bible, an illustration that helps me envision what could this look like comes from nature, specifically from the Nat Geo documentary, The Flood. Not about Noah's flood, about a different flood, I'll explain. Now, carefully, I don't necessarily recommend this documentary. There are a lot of sad examples of animals killing animals. Don't watch it with your kids. It's kind of sad, but it's still a helpful documentary. Now, in it, we see this story about the Akavanga Delta in Africa. It's a place that experiences severe drought on an annual basis. Now, the drought is so bad that it actually sucks the life out of the land. All the water is gone, the plants shrivel up, and the animals then either kill each other or they all flee to another place. The air becomes dusty and arid. It's no place anyone wants to be. But eventually the flood waters come. So this is the exact same place after the floods come. And with that water comes life. And so it's hard to imagine how that first picture becomes could become this kind of oasis. And yet with the flood waters, the desert is turned into a green oasis of life. And that is a picture of what can happen in our lives if the Spirit is present and working. Jesus says in John 7 that the Spirit is living waters inside of you. The Spirit can bring this flood of power, life, and renewal into you in any area that seems dead and lifeless. Here's just a few biblical examples where we see the Spirit do this. In Genesis 1-2, we have this picture that the Spirit of God, it says, is hovering over the void, formless earth. And it's the Spirit that is the life-giving, animating Spirit that brings life where there was no life before. Or consider God's deliverance of Israel at the Red Sea. Isaiah 63 actually looks back on this event. When Israel was surrounded by enemies, they were on the brink of death, and it says it was the Holy Spirit who supernaturally and in power pushed back the waters. The Holy Spirit turned the sea into a highway, and it leads them through to safety, rest, and life. Or in Ezekiel 37, we have this picture of the valley of dry bones. Now this desert-like valley full of dust, decay, and death, it seemed hopeless and tragic. And yet Ezekiel tells us that God then breathes his spirit back into it and it becomes alive. He turns the bones into an army for the Lord. The desert of death becomes an oasis of life. Now this should be immensely encouraging, partly as a reminder to stop doing on your own what only the spirit can do. But it's also a reminder to not lose hope or give in to discouragement when you don't like where things are at. In your life. When you start to feel like you're in a desert, when you feel like you have no power or strength to conquer sin, when something in your life feels empty or lifeless, when you're starting to lose hope that you can actually change or experience victory, remember that if you are in Christ, this same life-giving Spirit is in you. That if you have the Spirit of God in you, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, who turns valleys of dry bones into an oasis of life. He can resurrect whatever is lifeless in your world. He can heal whatever is broken. He can bring power where all you have is weakness. And he can do a work that isn't even on your radar right now. The Spirit is not limited by what you expect him to do or what you can do on your own. The Spirit can do what only God can do. 
this is a reminder even this morning that we should be praying for God's spirit to move and work in this kind of way in our own lives and in our church. We ask him to do what only he can do. We sing this earlier when we sing that he turns mourning into dancing. He gives beauty for ashes. He turns shame into glory. He's the only one who can. He turns graves into gardens. He turns bones into armies. He turns seas into highways. He's the only one who can. I should encourage us of what God's Spirit can do, not just in the Bible, but in your life today, this week. So don't lose hope. What we'll look at for the rest of our time is not only that that is true, but then how practically do we experience? How do we allow the Spirit to change us and to sanctify us in deeper ways? You could think about this in a lot of different ways, but I want us to think about this morning is consider how the Spirit works in three areas of our life. Our mind, our desires, and then our behaviors. Too often, I think we only think about changing our behaviors, change the stuff on the outside, but we don't deal with the desires and the thoughts underneath the surface. And those are the things that actually motivate and empower what we do. And I think that is one reason why we don't see deep and lasting change. We're just trying to change the fruit without dealing with the root. Now, like a weed, sin starts underneath the surface. And so if you want to get rid of it, you have to actually pull things up underneath the surface. You can cut off your internet to fight your lust, but unless you deal with your heart and mind, lust will just find some other avenue to fulfill itself. You can tell yourself all day long, don't worry or don't be angry, but unless you redirect your mind to truth, you're just hitting the snooze button on your anger and worry. Now, as we'll see, this doesn't mean we don't try to stop and fight our sin at the behavior level, but we don't only deal with behaviors. So the first place I want us to start is to consider what Paul says about renewing our mind. Follow along in verses 5 and 6 again. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now here, setting your mind on the flesh can mean setting your mind on sinful things. But it can also be letting your mind be preoccupied with the things of the earth. It can be focusing on or getting caught up in and consumed by worldly things, even good things that then take a level of authority in your life that is designed for the Spirit. Now when you set your mind on something, it actually then reorients your life and your desires around it, even if in small ways. Your mind thinks on something, and then it grabs a hold of your desires, which then eventually changes your behaviors. Kind of like if you think of a flower, if you ever have flowers in your yard or put it in a cup, when it sees the sun, the flower starts to bend toward the sun. And what happens with us is when we think about the things of the flesh or the world, our desires and heart are bent toward that. But when we set our mind on the things of the Spirit, we bend toward that. We're shaped and stirred up according to the things of God. Now think about that, how this works in advertising for a minute, how it begins with your thought life, changes your desires, and then moves into action. Let's imagine it's this afternoon, maybe you're watching the Olympics, you're just going on with your day, and then suddenly an ad for Chick-fil-A comes up. And just by putting that up there, by seeing the golden delicious chicken, the tasty waffle fries, all of a sudden you feel like you need it. 
You desire it. First you see it, gets in your head, and then starts affecting your desires and your wants. Next thing you know, you're on the app ordering your Chick-fil-A, showing up to get it. And that's how it works. Begins with the mind, moves to the heart, and then leads to behavior. I'm sorry for showing that. I realize this is not fair on a Sunday. (laughs) It's kind of like Song of Solomon when it says, do not awaken desire. Kind of did that today. The good news is, as I did sermon prep on this yesterday, I went to Chick-fil-A. So (laughs) someone got it. But that's how things work. They first get your mind, and the mind is the avenue to the heart. It's not that you are always thinking about things. Recently, when I'm on Facebook or YouTube, for some reason, it's been pulling up these old street basketball videos. Now, back in the day, I used to love street ball, um, but I never go on the internet thinking, yeah, I want to look at late 90s street ball videos or Vince Carter dunks. And yet, once I see it, I'm hooked. Next 30 minutes, I'm watching street ball and dunks. And just by seeing it, it gets a hold of me. I'm pulled in, and then I'm using my time based upon that. And Romans 8 says that's how we work as humans. When we set our minds on the things of the flesh, our heart is pulled toward the things of the flesh. But when we set our mind on the things of the Spirit, the Spirit stirs our desires and our actions towards the things that reflect God. Later in Romans 12, too, Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Ephesians 4.23 says something similar. Paul tells them to put off the old you in the flesh and to put on the new you in the spirit. And he says, do it by being renewed in the spirit of your minds. So these verses, they just reiterate how important the mind is to experiencing the spirit's work in our lives. So let me give you three ways that we can battle at the level of the mind. The first thing we can do is protect our minds. You have to guard your minds from sources that will lead it away from Christ. First Peter warns us to be sober-minded and to be alert with our thought life. And so you have to protect your mind from thoughts, beliefs, images, or sources that will either lead you away from Christ or even just distract you from the things of the Lord. So you have to know your level of discernment. You have to know where you're tempted, where your personal weaknesses are, And then the the important thing is to not be casual. Not be casual, but actually protect your mind by setting up defenses. So not only protect your mind, but second, replace lies with truth. Our sin, our idols, our temptations, they're always rooted in lies. Lies about God, lies about ourselves, lies about what sin can pay off. Think about worry. When we're tempted by worry, it might be rooted in the lie that God doesn't see or God doesn't know what I'm going through, or God doesn't care, or he's not in control. Those are the lies we believe. And so when I notice fear or worry creep into my heart, I need to think about my thinking by asking questions like, what lie am I believing? What are the lies about God in this moment? And then what truths do I need to rehearse and believe instead? And so you replace lies by rehearsing truths and promises. Or you silence the lies, lies of the enemy, the lies in your own head, by letting Scripture outspeak those voices. You let truth speak above the lies. And this is how we do what the Bible says, of taking every thought captive and renewing our mind. This takes us to our third application. You have to fill your mind with God's Word. The greatest way to have your mind renewed is by the Spirit when you immerse yourself in the Bible and gaze on the beauty of Christ. 
these last four weeks, we've talked a lot about how the Spirit always works through the Word, and the Spirit always points us back to Jesus. And so if you're wondering, how does the Spirit want to renew my mind? It's those two areas. It's being in the Word, and it's reflecting on Christ. In Ephesians 6, we're told that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And so the Spirit of God wants to fight for you, with you, and in you, but it says that he does so through the Bible. And so as we fill our minds with the beauty of Christ by getting into God's Word, that's how the Spirit then changes our desires and then changes who we are. So first, we renew our mind. The next thing we're told to do in Romans is to yield our desires. So if the mind has more to do with our thought life, desires have to do with our passions, our affections, our longings, and obviously the things we desire. And what we learn is that as humans, we don't just do stuff randomly, but we do things because of the desires in our heart, what we want when we do those things. We act out of anger or impatience because we desire control right away. We make decisions out of fear because we desire comfort or security. We present this best version of ourselves because we desire respect, esteem, or approval. It begins with desire. Listen to what James 1 says about our desires. James 1 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so what we're told is that sin taps into our desires, both good and bad desires, and it leads us astray through those desires. Think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve weren't tempted by just the object of fruit. No one's tempted by that. Adam and Eve were tempted by the desire to be like God, the desire to have more than what God has provided. And that's how temptation always works. It's not the object itself. It's the desire underneath the object. Now, hearing that, though, I'm not saying that desire is the problem. Desire isn't the problem, but it's desiring the wrong things or the right things in the wrong ways or for the wrong reasons. And because desire isn't the problem, the answer isn't simply saying no to desire, to suppress it, to tell it to be quiet. But what we see is that instead desires need yielded to the Spirit and redirected to the things that actually give life, are good, and are from the Lord. And so the, the spiritual battle we're in between the flesh and the Spirit, it takes place at the level of desire. In Galatians 5, a parallel passage of Romans 8, it says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul is saying that we're always governed by desires, and our desires will either be led by the flesh or led by the Spirit. When our desires are given over to the flesh, we have these fruit of the flesh that Paul lists as sins in Galatians 5, and there's a long list. And yet, when our desires are given over to and submitted to the Spirit, that's where we get the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And so it's first our desires, and then it leads to fruit, good or bad. Here are three more ways that we can apply it. There's three ways that you then yield your desires to the Spirit rather than the flesh. The first is that we then aim our desire toward the right things rather than just suppressing it or trying to have no desires. 
Instead of, des- instead of starving desire, we need to feed it the right things. Our desires need a spiritual feast rather than an earthly snack. Because the, the, the Spirit's goal, it's not to make you a human being with no desires. The Spirit's goal is to make you a human being full of desire, but desires for the right and the best things. And so rather than just saying no, no, no to all desires, you redirect and you aim those desires to the things of God. Second, we have to evaluate what we're desiring, why we desire it, and then how we seek to fulfill those desires. And to do that, we have to actually ask the Spirit to help us. We pray to the Spirit that He would search our hearts, that He would reveal those desires going on, and that He would convict us of sinful desires. Now, it might help you to think of a common area where you are tempted. What are you tempted by the most or the most frequently? Maybe it's loneliness or jealousy or lust or fear or pride. So think about when you experience that temptation, that moment when you feel the pull toward it the most. And then think, in that moment, what is it you desire? Again, not just the sin itself, but what is the desire underneath the sin? What is it you're looking for? In order to change In order to redirect our desires, we have to understand what they are and where we're trying to fulfill them in the wrong places. And the third thing we're told is that we actually need to submit our feelings and desires to the truth. Pastor Chris always says this. He says that feelings are real and significant, but they're not authoritative. Our feelings aren't trustworthy. And so we need to admit that our desires can be corrupt, deceived, unstable, and self-centered, which means you cannot trust your heart. And this is one of the ways we have to be careful not to follow the cultural norms around us. The culture prioritizes feelings. We're told to trust our feelings. We're told whatever you feel is right and good and a reliable guide in life. Both kids and adults are told to follow your heart or believe in yourself. And one of the reasons we like that is because it actually tells us, do what you want. Go after the things that you think will make you happy. And yet what we see is that our desires and our feelings are subjective. And so what we need is something objective, something authoritative, something that doesn't move, that can be a buffer and a guide to those desires. And so part of how we reorient our desires is by submitting to the truth. And this is how your thinking and your desires go together. You might feel like God has abandoned you, and be tempted just to then try to take care of things yourself or fix things in your life. But the truth reminds you that God is working, that God is powerful, and God is present, whether you feel it or not. Your desire might be to get the last word in, to feel good when you gossip, or to desire to prove yourself in front of other people. And yet all those feelings and desires are of the flesh rather than the spirit. And so that's why we need the Bible. The Bible will put those desires and feelings in check. It will help us see them for what they are so we can confess it and we can flee them. And so you reorient your desires around what is good and beautiful by renewing your mind according to what is true. So you renew your mind, you yield your desires. The third and final thing we see is that then we have to put to death sinful deeds. Now, I've talked a lot about fighting sin at the level of your thoughts and desires because that is where the roots of sin are, which means to experience deep change, you have to fight your thoughts and desires. 
But at the same time, simultaneously, you have to also be fighting at the level of behaviors, actions, and words. You know, if you're tempted by angry outbursts, lasting change will happen in part by thinking about what you're desiring or thinking about your thinking. And yet, you still need to just put to death those angry outbursts and practice patience. If you struggle with sarcasm or hurtful words or talking back, there is a hard issue that needs addressed, and yet you need to practice not saying what you think you need to say. If you're tempted by pornography, having accountability, a better firewall, or getting rid of the internet might not change your heart, but they can change the things that are fueling your heart and mind. They can keep you from stumbling deeper and deeper into sin. And so we fight at all levels, the heart, the mind, and the actions. Listen to Romans 8. It uses language that calls us to get serious about our sin and to put it to death. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice the urgency and the intensity of Paul's language here. He tells us to put to death our sinful deeds. The Puritan John Owen, he said about this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So the point here is not to be casual with your sin, not to let your sin linger, not to try to take care of it, domesticate it or manage it, but to starve it, to run from it, to put your sin to death. Let me give three ways we fight sin at this level. The first thing is that we need to see sin for what it is and call it out as sin rather than hiding it, disguising it, or downplaying it. What this means is don't put a soft label on your sin so that you don't feel bad about it. My wife has recently told me I do this by using the language of saying, I'm just joking. So often I'll say something sarcastic, maybe give a jab, and then I follow it up with saying, oh, I'm just joking. Now, I might be joking in part, but that's a way to say, my sin's not a big deal. Rather than saying, that was hurtful, I should not have said that, I just say, oh, I was just joking. And we do this all the time with what we call our sin. Instead of saying we're angry, we say, oh, I just got a little frustrated. We call worry concern. We call our greed pleasure, or we say, I'm just struggling, as opposed to saying, I'm sinning. And the problem when we minimize, we hide, or we explain away our sin is we then can't truly change. You won't confess something and try to put it to death if you don't call it sin. And so by seeing sin as sin, by calling it sin, it helps us know this is a problem. I need God's help, and I want to change and flee from it. You're ready to wage war because it's actually sin and not just a small thing. Second, put up safeguards where you know you're most likely to be tempted. If you know the ways you're regularly tempted, then do whatever is necessary to cut off temptation. If Facebook or the news makes you angry or discontent or discouraged, then turn it off. If having a drink causes you to let down your guard in other areas, then don't have a drink or maybe don't go into the restaurant. If walking into that specific store causes discontentment, or it stirs materialism, then don't go into the store. I know if I go into REI, I'm going to want to buy something that's a lot of money that I don't need, so I just don't go in the store. And so you have to learn, where am I most likely to be tempted? And then you cut off the temptation. Third, we're told that we put off sin by putting on righteousness. You actually stop walking in the flesh by walking in the Spirit. 
You stop the things that were characteristic of you before Jesus by putting on the things that are fitting in Jesus. You don't just stop sinning. That never works. You actually start obeying Christ. And so you replace harmful or hurtful words by saying things that build up. You replace anger with patience. And you replace selfishness with selflessness. You put off and you put on. Or you actually put off by putting on. So three ways you fight sin. See sin for what it is. Call it out. Put up safeguards where you're most likely to be tempted. And then put off by putting on. Now this morning, I hope we see in this lesson from Romans 8 that one of the main reasons that God gave you his spirit is because he wants to make you holy. He wants to sanctify you. The good news is that real deep change is possible. That experiencing change, it's not for some people. It's not an illusion out there. Change is possible by the Spirit of God. That if you have this almighty, life-giving Spirit in you, then he can turn the desert into an oasis. He can turn the valley of dry bones into an army of life. And so my prayer and part of my hope is that this week, and even today, that you would be thinking about what are those areas of my life that need the Spirit's work? What feels dead and broken that needs restored and renewed? And then you give those things to the Spirit. You fight, but you fight in the Spirit's power. Would you pray with me? God, I confess, and I know that we are a weak people, that we are powerless against sins and temptations and idols on our own, and so we need your help. And God, we believe and we have hope that if the Spirit is in us and with us, that we can change that we can walk in victory and freedom. God, I pray for those this morning who are discouraged, who feel like they've not seen growth or change in their life, that even this morning you would give them hope, that you would help them this week to turn to the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray if there's someone in here who is caught in sin, who is hiding it, who is downplaying it, that your spirit would convict, that you, God, would expose sin so that you could heal, reveal, and change. God, we thank you that you are not done with us, but that you have promised to finish the good work you have started. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.